In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about pricing, we talk about doing customer development in a crowded space, and about how much testing is too much testing. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 447. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. So we're this week, man. Well, you remember how there was a, a couple of weeks ago where I had mentioned that there was this ongoing Google app authentication approval process I was going through? Yeah, seems like that's been going on for quite some time. Yeah. Well, like I said, they had uh, announced it back in, I think, like October or November, but they didn't really give any details on it other than what was published on their website. And they were slowly adding to it. And then earlier this year, they started ramping up requests for information and all these additional things. And I got an email the other day saying that they were basically going to you know, start yanking access. And I've actually been going back and forth with a couple of people inside of Google who have reached out. I just want to say thanks to the, those listeners who do work at Google and have been listening. But they forwarded over a couple of my emails and started pushing through some things. And hopefully things are moving a little bit faster. But I did just get an email this morning saying, okay, now you have to go through this uh, security review. So I'm trying to figure out or find out more information about exactly what that looks like and whether it's absolutely required. And I don't know, it's just been a red tape nightmare is really what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. And is, I mean, I, I have questions for you about this. Like it, it sounds like this could be an existential threat to blue tech. Is that right? I mean, could it basically put you out of business overnight? Yeah, it, it absolutely could. And did that scare you? I mean, yeah, that- it does. I mean, like the, the whole reason I chose IMAP was because I didn't want to be beholden to the Gmail API and I didn't want to have to deal with anything that they could come in and say ch- either change or maybe they say, oh, we're not going to offer this anymore. And I didn't want to have to deal with like latencies and things like that associated with it because I knew that people were running into problems with that kind of stuff. And now, you know, fast forward a bit and then they decide change policy and suddenly policy says you have to go through all this red tape in order to verify your app. And now because of what I'm doing, I have to go through a security review and it's a third party security review. So the cost for that is pushed onto me and they don't even give you a, an actual price for it. It's like, I have to pay for it. And it's anywhere from 15 to $75,000 on an annual basis. So yeah. And you totally have that in the couch cushions, right? Oh yeah. You know, I was just, you know, to get, get the money from the tooth fairy or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an existential threat and you genuinely don't know what's going to happen, right? I mean, they could literally yank access in two days and just say you didn't comply or whatever. Is that accurate? Uh, I I don't think that it's going to be, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't think that it's two days. I suppose they could, but I think I get, did get an email like, I don't know, two couple of weeks ago saying that they were going to extend the timeline to I think June 15th. So I don't know whether the security assessment needs to be done by the 15th or there was something else in there that said if you've had it done before, I think, January 19th, then you have to have it done by the the December 15th or 19th or something like that. So I don't know whether there's this like six month time frame. If it's been done in the past six months, you're fine. But before that, you have to have a new one done. I don't really know. Like they're not they're not forthcoming with direct information when you ask them questions like and it's just slow responses 
is is this anywhere? I mean, have you gone online to forums? Other other people have to be experiencing this, right? Mm -hmm. And have you gone onto forums and looked? And does anyone have clarity on this? Or do we know, like, who do we know who has an app? You know, like Superhuman as an example. Now we don't know the founders of that, but who has an app like that that also relies on Google or Gmail specifically that that you can connect with and, and ask if they have any clarity on it? Because this does feel like a something where the, the wisdom of more, you know, it needs more than one person because it sounds like you're not getting the answers. And if we cobble together three or four founders who've had experience with this, that maybe you could get some kind of clarity. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I can certainly go and look for those. I mean, I've been following, there's a, a it's not a blog, but it's, a, I guess it's, it is a set of blog posts from a couple of different people. Context.io was one that I was looking at and they have this blog article that they talked about where they're basically shutting down the whole thing because they just, they can't meet the requirements. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're just done. And then there's another one I've been following. I forget the name of it. I've got it bookmarked. But they've been documenting the whole process of what they've asked, what they've gone gone through, what the responses were, what they said, and they got all of the way to the point where they had to have a security assessment done. And they, they said that out of respect for that company, they're not posting how much it costs, but I was going to drop them an email today. And, and that's a, a recent post that they put out there. I'm going to drop them an email and be like, hey, look, like, what does this actually involve? What does this look like? Because I'm not getting any answers I need either. So uh, since they've already gone through it, I'd love to hear more. But things have been really rushed over the past two weeks because that's the that's when they started sending out these emails saying, hey, here are the dates where we're going to start notifying people who own these domains that you're no longer going to be allowed to access the the API or it's a your your app is no longer trusted or hasn't been verified yet. And it's like over the course of the next four weeks or so, three to four weeks, like they say that they're going to yank everything if you don't meet the requirements. But I just got an email this morning saying, hey, you've you've gone through this final verification. And I checked my database logs and it's like, oh, yeah, they did actually log in. They did add a mailbox. And apparently I'm past that point, but I still need to have this security assessment done. And I'm just like, I mean, I wrote a long email that I guess they're forwarding around internally that basically laid out all these things. It's like, I probably know more about security and compliance than most of the people that you have working on this and definitely more than like the average developer. And not to sound arrogant about that, but I actually do. And I pointed to different places where like I've been the author of like a, one of the Center for Internet Security Benchmarks. And like these are independent publications where you can see my name is on them like like I authored them. And like, isn't there some sort of exception that can be put in here? Isn't there, isn't there money set aside in Google for, you know, small companies? Isn't there something there that says that if you're below a certain threshold, it doesn't apply to you? Like, it's not like I'm out here trying to scam the world or anything. I'm like, I'm just trying to carve out an existence here for myself. And they're like the government, I guess. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I see it. It's like they're large and inflexible and I, I don't know what to do. It's like arguing with the IRS. You're probably not going to get very far, but. Yeah. The hard part is that, you know, the scrutiny that they're coming under now, right? With all the Facebook privacy security crap and that, you know, I mean, so you understand why they might have a policy like this, even though it, it doesn't necessarily feel fair. I, I do. I, I get it. I, I understand but at the same time, when you look at the discrepancies between what the benefits to me are for having this security assessment done, like all that does is it benefits Google. It benefits their security baseline. It benefits their security posture globally. What does it do for me? Zero. It does absolutely nothing. It doesn't get me more customers. It doesn't add to my marketing footprint. I don't even get really like listed anywhere where it's going to get 
you know, like a large amount of traffic or anything like that. Like I get virtually nothing. I'm the one paying for it. And Google's reaping the rewards and benefits of it. So from that justification, like, why should I pay for this? They're making 15, $16 million per hour. And they actually had to go back and forth with me to say, please create a free account for us so that we can log into your app. It's like, really, you can't sign up for a free trial from Google. Like nobody there has got a credit card. Like that, it just seems, it just boggles my mind that they're treating people this way. That part, the part about the credit card I get, because in a big company, very few people have credit cards, right? Because they don't want people just willy-nilly. You can't track all the expenses and you wouldn't know what was going on. So it's not that they don't have the money to have credit cards. It's that tracking credit cards is a pain in the butt in an organization with thousands of people. So that that part makes a little more sense to me. It, it makes a little more sense, but at the same time, it's a free trial. Mm-hmm. Like there should have been a credit card someplace that they got and said, look, there shouldn't be anything paid going on this. And if there is contact whoever it is, and if you need to do a charge back, do a charge back. But like that shouldn't be a back and a two week back and forth between them and the developer. And like, I literally waited for two weeks for them to get back to me. I was like, what email address are you using to register? Nothing. Two weeks, nothing. I mean, it's not a hard question. Just, I, and I could have done it like, and I did eventually get, you know, hear back from him and got it all taken care of. But then even after I sent it to him and I said, Hey, here it is. It was still another week. Yeah. That's the hard part. I, I think to mean them not having a credit card, I, I would give them a pass on. I just know how it is at big companies and on and on. I won't belabor that point. The fact that it took him two weeks or three weeks or what, you know, whatever you're saying is that's the part that gets really hard when they have a deadline <laughs> And you are trying to meet it and they're not getting back to you quick enough. It sounds like they're not staffed up enough in this department and they, some arbitrary person somewhere decided, oh, we have to be compliant with this by this date, but didn't actually make the decision to staff up or to, you know, give the proper resources. I think the circle back on your, the audit, how, how it benefits Google and not you. I don't disagree with you, but I also, it's the same thing with Apple and the App Store. They can kind of, I mean, it is a monopoly in essence. They kind of can do what they want because they they can screw the developers if they want. And that's the hard part. That's the bummer of building on someone else's platform. And until it's antitrust, you know, and the government gets involved, you kind of can't do anything. And that's, you're in an odd position because I know that you didn't intend to build on someone else's platform and that you did the IMAP stuff on purpose so that they wouldn't have the, you know, I mean, you've said that multiple times. And I remember talking in the early days and that was the point is you were going to do something that isn't, you know, reliant on someone else. And so, yeah, for them to just come in and say, you need to, to drop 15 to 75 K, they can do it. And it sucks. It sucks. But I cannot imagine them bearing the cost for all the developers who use their API. Because I think that's what you're saying, right? Is, is you want them to bear the, the burden of it. And I just, I don't know, I don't know of a large company with a, a, such a large public API that would do that unless they, are you thinking they would have like their own internal team that would do it and they would just cover, you know, have people on salary to do it type thing? I would think that they would have something along those lines. I mean, honestly, like my, my initial thought was like, there are going to be companies that can bear the burden and it's not really that big a deal for them. Fine. Like those aren't the ones that I'm, I'll say kind of publicly advocating for here. It's the ones that are in a position like me where very limited resources, I'm not funded. Like I'm not making the type of money that would make a third party audit like that particularly easy. Like I'm doing everything myself. So if I had five employees or 10 employees and was bringing in a million dollars a year, like, okay, that's a very different story. Like, but there should be something set aside or some sort of exception process in place 
for companies that are not meeting a certain threshold. Very similar to like when the government comes in and says, oh, if you are 50 employees or more, you have to provide health care for your employees. Like, the, But there's that threshold there because the burden on super small companies is so incredibly high, whereas Pfizer or Facebook or Apple, like they don't care. It's a drop in the bucket to them. Like they even have an entire compliance division, I'm sure. But like a, a six person company, no, that's, that's not the case. So when you get into those super small companies, basically what they've done is they've taken this blanket statement that says these rules and regulations apply to everyone. And personally, I understand why they've done that. I understand what they're their intent is, but the application of it and applying it to every single business, big or small, is it's skewed in a direction that it benefits the big businesses by pushing the smaller companies out of business. Yeah. And the thing I struggle with is I can see it from their perspective and that the smaller companies are most likely going to be the ones that have the security holes. I would think, right? Maybe not in your case, because you know security and you did it for so many years, but think about how many two-year developers, you know, a junior developer hacking something together in PHP, getting the API key. They don't, they're not thinking about the security at the level that you are or that Google would require. So I actually think the the risk to them is higher on the low end. So I don't think there could be exemptions. It's almost like you're asking, you want more of a scholarship. That would be it, right? If you look at the um, at exactly what you just said, the risk for a large company versus a small company is actually very similar. And the reason is because a large company will have a much larger footprint, so they have much more data available to them and a larger customer base. A smaller company would have very few customers, so the likelihood of any one of those getting hacked or, or them getting hacked or something happening, some sort of security breach, even if it does happen, the footprint of that breach is going to be much, much smaller. So think of like TJ Maxx, however many mil hundreds of millions of credit cards got hacked, it's because they're huge. If let's say that Stripe was hacked, it, that's a very similar thing. If you look at something like Blue Tick or Level, for example, which Derek Reimer just decided he was going to shut that down. Let's say that he was, for whatever reason, storing credit cards on his on his server and that got hacked. How many people have put their credit cards into that? And the answer is going to be it's much smaller than TJ Maxx. Right. So it's a higher likelihood of, of it getting breached, but A, fewer people are going to want to breach it because they know it's small. And B, even if it gets breached, it just isn't as nearly as big of a deal. Correct. It's about impact at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, man, I mean, yeah, their policy, I mean, it's, it's obviously very hard on, on what you're doing. I mean, I think the question I feel like as a founder is like, you're fighting this now. If you somehow win this battle, you know, this conversation, do you have concerns moving forward that this is going to continue to be an issue? And I bring that up because with apps that I've run in the past, when Google or someone else broke, when it was platform built, they broke every year, 12 to 18 months, six to 18 months, whatever. They just kept breaking my stuff. And it was a, it was kind of an ongoing thing. And I think I, I want to like pose that question, have a, have you considered that? And B, is that a reason to move on? You know, and I'm not saying you should, but like, ha have you given that thought? Has that gone through your mind of like, I, I just, I shouldn't be doing this and I should go look for a different idea? It has crossed my mind and I have given it thought. I think the situation is a little different in terms of the platform itself breaking because like I'm reliant on IMAP, not anything else. So from that perspective, I don't think that that's an ongoing issue. The policy changes could be because if they change policy once, then there's no 
reason to think that it, they couldn't decide that they're going to change policy again. And could that come up in the future? It absolutely could. It could have come up you know, next year or the year after. Yeah, it absolutely could. Am I worried about that side of it? Probably not, because I think with Blue Tick, it's one of those things where like I've kind of evaluated and said, like, look, this needs to move forward in a certain amount of time. And if it doesn't, then I should go on to something else. Yeah, that's something I think we should probably dig into in an episode or two. Uh, I know we don't have it. We don't have it on the books today and, and no, we haven't done prep or whatever. But I think it would, could be an interesting conversation for you and I to talk about where you are with blue tick and just hear more, you know, how you're thinking about it and, and what, you know, where, where it stands in your mind, especially given the light of what's going on right now. I mean, this is a lot of hassle for, like you said, for an app that is not as successful as you want it to be. Right. I mean, I even, I even went in and took a screenshot of revenue and sent it to him. Like, look, this is how much it's making. And you want me to do this? This is not, this is absurd. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see what they have to say. I mean, hopefully in a couple of weeks, I'll have more information, but I mean, I may not, I don't know. Yeah. But I'm spending so much of my time with like red tape right now. And I have been for like several months now and it's just, I'm not moving and it, and it sucks. And I, I, I don't know what else I can do. Is it taking up that much time? Because I know that I can imagine replying to emails, you screenshot, you make the argument, then you send the email and then don't you have the rest of your day to then build features? Or, or market, I would say. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be building features right now. Maybe it should be more marketing, but whatever, to do things that push the business forward. It's, it's really distracting. Like just thinking about, like having that in my brain, like kind of bouncing around, it's really been distracting. It's, it's a little bit hard to focus. You're saying you fire the email and then, you, and then you're hung up on it for an hour or two and you're have struggling to get work done. Is that the idea? Some of it's like, so in the past two days I've spent, like there were two different emails that I sent. Each of them took me like an hour to put together. Yeah. So, and it's just, it just takes time to do that, which sucks. And I don't know, I, maybe I could be like a lot less, uh, I provide a lot less detail and I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it's tough because when I hear that, I think, oh man, that is a waste of time. But if you don't put the thought into it and, and write a well-crafted email in this situation, it could be business ending. So the, you know, where's the time, time best spent, I think the thing, but if you spend an hour to send an email, you still have the other six hours of your day or however, you know, seven hours of your day, depending on how much you work, are, are you dis then distracted for that time? Or can you, are you able to just let it go? Cause that, that's where you got to get, right. If you want to move this forward is like to let it go and be like, I'm going to move forward until, I mean, you do have a timeline. It's like two weeks, three weeks until you know for sure, I'm assuming. Sure. So like th this morning, like I spent some time doing support stuff this morning and then I spent an hour on one of those emails and then I've got this call for an hour and then I've got another call right after that for an hour. And that takes me to one o'clock in the afternoon and my kids get home at 2.45 and I haven't even eaten lunch yet. So I'll hopefully start getting work done around 1.30. And I'll have like an hour and a half to two hours before my kids get home. So, you know, it's just, it's hard to get things done when that ends up being your schedule. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer at the moment, but it's something I definitely need to think about offline, but we can, we can discuss it next week or the week after or something. Yeah. Let's, let's do that because I, I do think this is worthwhile digging into and I don't want to derail this whole episode, but I, I think this is such an interesting topic because this is the real side of entrepreneurship, right? This is the, these are the hard things that we all go through that are scary 
and and they're and and you you often don't know what to do and it's it's stressful right i mean you, i i have to imagine that then when work ends your kids get home you're probably stressed all evening i would guess unless you can let it go you know and that's there's a lot of a lot of ways we can we can talk about this so cool well thanks yeah thanks for sharing that man i know that it's not this is not easy stuff to talk about but i think this kind of real i think this real conversation is important well, I was moving on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I, I know on a cheerier note, I have some updates, but I, I you know, I'm going to leave them till next episode. Cause they're just not that time sensitive. It was some thinking I was doing. So let's, let's dive into a, a, a listener question. we got a voicemail question about pricing. Hello, Rob and Mike. First of all, thank you for your podcast. You've definitely made many a car journey and things like mowing the lawn enjoyable. My question is yet another question about pricing, something that's been playing on my mind for a while. So while not trying to promote, I thought some background really helps these questions, otherwise it turns into a whole load of it depends. I run a successful SaaS called Snapshooter that runs digitalization backups. However, the vendor lock-in and the fear of digitalization releasing daily backups and making my life difficult is real. So I've been working on my next product, Automaily, a SaaS for SaaS products that integrates payment gateway with your payment gateway so you can do emails and other workflow integrations without any code. A bit like if Drip and Chumbusters had a love chart. I've been struggling to work out pricing though. Uh, I want it to be in line with the value a customer receive. So thought of a percentage of monthly recurring revenue have a settled on a hidden percentage scheme saying $9 per 1000 MRR. However, talking to customers, the percentage model uh, seems to strike fear into people uh, with unexpected costs. So do you have a better suggestion before I roll with that because I, it's just become a distraction? Thanks again, Simon. Um, you can learn more about Automaily at automaily.com. Thank you. You have thoughts on this, Mike? Yeah, definitely. I've heard from other people who have apps that are kind of in this space and they have kind of reiterated the same thing that you've discovered, which is people really hate having a percentage model of any kind because they want it to be predictable. And I I think it's interesting to see them make that argument because if you look at what you're doing for them, you're basically saving them money and uh, preventing churn and you don't get paid unless they receive more money. So the reality of the situation is they're going to make more money by using your service, but they're concerned about the fact that it's going to cost them more money, even though they're making more money by using your service. And for whatever reason, they have it in their heads that it's going to, like the costs fluctuate per month and they're not sure if they can afford it. And this is a huge hangup for them. And I've heard it time and time again. What I would do is I would actually go and look at some of the competitors and don't try to reinvent the wheel. Look at what they've done for pricing models and how they are putting things together and how they're presenting them to customers. And don't lean towards this model where people are going to hate your pricing. Find out what other people have done, kind of copy what they've done, and then you know show how your solution differs from theirs. Don't differentiate on your pricing model because that's going to actually make your job of presenting it to customers a lot more challenging because they're not going to understand it. They're going to look at all your competitors and say, well, they have this pricing model and that one and this thing that you've come up with is completely not insane or ridiculous, but it's just very, very different. And they're going to have a hard time processing it. And they're going to mentally cross you off their list because they don't understand your pricing model. Yep. I have tried to innovate with pricing models before, and I have seen founders do it. And it is very, it's very hard to do. It's kind of like saying, I want to invent a new category. And it's like, that sounds like a great idea. Call your app a, um, 
it's an integration email blah platform or something. And people are like, so what is that? So how are you different from MailChimp then? How are you different from Zapier then? You know, and, and that's, those are the questions you get. People want to categorize it in their mind. And the pricing is similar. I, I think your advice is dead on. And, and the way I would approach it too is to at least look around at what other players who have similar models, how they're approaching it. And there there are the the ones that, that reduce churn, but then there's also ones that help abandon carts. And there, you know, there's there's a whole gamut of things that kind of make people money directly using email. And personally, I would pull out my, you know, my Moleskin notebook and I would start, I would just go around and do a big survey, boom, 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 write it all down and look at how those that pricing is structured and kind of start from there. What you may find is that everyone does it based on percentage as well. And you've just hit a few customers who don't like it and that's fine. Your sample size is really small and that makes it hard so far. So I would, uh, as you said, Mike, I would start there. And then the more people you talk to, the more data points you'll get. And at a certain point, you will know, boy, if you've talked to 20 people and 19 have had a problem with it, well, then it's a real problem. But if you talk to 20 people and it was the first two or three who said it, then it's a little more clear cut. So I hope that was helpful, Simon. Thanks for uh, sending your voicemail in. As always, voicemails go to the top of the question queue. Our next question is from Martin at quoshift.com. He says... Hey, Rob and Mike. My name is Martin. I'm from Australia. I'm looking to start a new SaaS business in a fairly mature space. There are about three competitors in the 10 to $100 million range in annual revenue that I would eventually like to compete with. I've compiled a large list of current users of those solutions. I'm going to go ahead and reach out to schedule some interviews. My platform will be easier to use while providing an objectively better technical solution than other companies. Easier to use objectively better. What are the top three questions you would be asking these users to see if they would be interested in switching to my product? By the same token, how could I get people to pre-sign up to my solution? What do you think? I think I would start by asking them, what is the single thing you hate the most about what they're using now? Because that's probably going to drive them to switch. It's not going to be, oh, this could be a, a better solution. It's going to be better technically, or you know, the UI is going to be better. None of that stuff. You have to hone in on the things that they absolutely hate, and use that as a lever to try and move them from whatever else they're using. Because they're going to want to avoid that pain more than they're going to want to incrementally improve over what they have now. That's where I would definitely focus. Beyond that, I just the language I'd say in the email has a is a little bit concerning because you're saying that it's objectively better technically. Your customers aren't going to care. It's more about their experience with it and what they are going to get out of it. Yeah, switching costs, whether they high or not in actuality, they are always high in someone's mental, uh, you know, in their mind, and so you can't make an app that is. 30% better and expect people to switch. You need to make an app that is two times, three times better and have a real compelling way to communicate that to the customer. Selling a building a better mousetrap is, is a really hard way to get people to to switch SaaS apps. The switching cost on mousetraps is not high. I'll put it that way. And the switching cost on, on SaaS apps is I like I like your idea, the number one question of like, what do you hate most? You know, what are the two or three things you hate most about th this app? And I think, you know, to, to tie in, I mean, you talked about Derek Reimer earlier, deciding not to do level. He wrote a good blog post, DerekReimer.com, um, about 
deciding to shut it down in the process there and that he, he felt like his validation wasn't, he, he didn't do it as well as he should have. And he referenced a book called The Mom Test. Subtitle is How to Talk to Customers and Learn if Your Business is a Good Idea When Everyone is Lying to You. And, you know, one of the big questions in there is not just what's your biggest pain, but I then followed up with what have you done to try to get around this pain so far? What have you done to solve this pain so far? Because if they say, my biggest pain is that I can't integrate with this other product. And if you build that integration, it'd be great. What have you done to solve that pain? Well, if they haven't tried to hire a developer or write any code to do it or tie into Zapier or do anything to actually fix the pain, then the odds are, are good that that pain actually isn't that big of a deal. That in their head, they're thinking, yeah, this is a pain. This is something I dislike. But if they haven't, taken the time or the money or made effort to fix it, it starts to sound like, well, maybe this isn't, isn't that big of a deal. So I think that'd be a follow-up question that I would, you know, then ask about each of those pain points. And I would, you know, go read the mom test, of course, to, to even, you know, help further. Cause there, there's a whole bunch of questions in that, in that book. And you know, one other thing I would consider asking is I'm interested because from a customer development standpoint, you want to find out kind of what to build and the early things to build, I would be curious to ask, you know, how long have you been using this product? How hard would it be to switch? And have you considered switching in the past? And if you have, why didn't you switch to another product? You know what I mean? Like go down that logic, that path of trying to really get into it to figure out when it comes time, are they, have they actually thought through what switching to your product will look like? Because if they haven't, they can get right up to the end. They've asked you to build all these integrations, and then they're like, "Oh, well, I hadn't thought that it would." I'd have to get a developer involved, and and that's a that's a no go. Th those are the types of questions. That's the path I would follow. So, thanks for the question, Martin. I uh, hope that's helpful. I think we have time for one more question today. This one is also about uh, it's about customer development. It's about setting up initial meetings when all you have is wireframes. It's from Scott. Hi, guys. I have a question for you. I'm trying to validate my idea by talking through wireframes with people. But before that can happen, I'm sending cold emails to people that I'm assuming are the target decision makers. In my case, it's HR managers of companies with around 250 or so employees, which may or may not be right. I wondered if you could talk about your experiences with getting those initial meetings set up. I don't have a website at the moment, just initial product wireframes. Do you think that's a mistake at this early stage? And then he gives us a, a sample email, which you know I think is is well written. You have thoughts on this? I like that he let off the email by saying, you know, we're in the early stages of building an app because I think it conveys to the person on the other end that you know you're, I'll say, an aspiring entrepreneur. And I found that that's actually a really good opening way to position yourself because you're essentially soliciting them for their expertise and their advice. A couple of things I would keep in mind, though, is that the people that you talk to very early on like this are like depending on how long it takes you to get your app out the door, it, it could be that these people are just not going to ultimately end up being your customers. So just bear that in mind. Like don't bend over backwards for every single one of these people thinking that you're going to get all of them as a, a paying customer once you start shipping the app or you have something to ship. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that. But the fact of the matter is that people switch jobs or their priorities change, like all kinds of things can happen between the time that you first talk to them and then you have something that is uh, something you can show to them. I don't think it's a mistake to just show them wireframes. I mean, you need something to show them, especially if you want to get any sort of prepayment or commitment from them. And 
the reason I would lean more towards that prepayment is because it essentially overcomes a hurdle, which is that they're saying that they would pay for something versus they will pay for it. And if they give you a credit card as a prepayment, then they are willing to pay for it versus, oh, this sounds like a good idea. I would pay for it. But the reality is they want to see it and they want to be able to play around with it. And there's going to be a bunch of people who fall into that category where they would pay for it, except, and then they've got all these different reasons that until you ask them for their credit card, they're not really going to tell you because they want to be helpful. Nobody wants to be the person who says, oh, this is a bad idea. And if they're trying to give you advice, they're going to say those types of nice things. It's going to be what you want to hear, not necessarily what you need to hear. Yeah. The the hard part here is if you're an HR manager of a company with 250 employees, you're not going to you're not going to prepay for something like this. Prepayment is such a SMB thing. You know, when you're talking to a single founder or a founder of a five-person company, yeah, they'll totally give you a hundred bucks or whatever, put it on a credit card, whatever. But that that type of thing is, it, it works very differently as you get to, you know, the mid-market where they have these massive budgets and everything's tracked. You could feasibly do prepayment, but it's going to be like, all right, so can you pay us, would you pay us five or $10,000 and then you're going to need contracts. You're going to have to go through, you know, procurement. I mean, that's that's what this process would be like at that point. Trying to sell prematurely or getting you're trying to fund this based on customer revenue, right, or customer presales with larger companies. And it is definitely a it's, it's much different than I think we we would think than if you know if you were dealing with just smaller companies. Well, I don't think you necessarily need to get to the point where you're funding it with their money. It's really, for in my mind, it's more a matter of are they willing to commit to paying for it when it's ready? It's, it's a different goal than if you're trying to get money from them to fund the development of it. I think those are two different things, and depending on which direction he's trying to go. Yeah, and that's fair. So you don't have to fund it. Fund it yourself. But getting getting folks, at, you know, someone who runs HR at a 250-person company to give you the credit card number and say, yes, I'll give you a few hundred dollars. I, that just, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Like I've worked at larger companies and I just know the politics and everything that goes on in there. And you're just so busy trying to push things forward that unless the solution is there in front of me, there are so many people marketing and trying to sell to these HR managers or to any manager at, you know, at a company that it's like them giving you the time to even give you feedback and then them going out on a limb and giving you money with the thought that you might build something. I mean, if they don't know you, do they know that you're going to build good software? Do they trust, you know, I mean, do they trust that you're going to deliver it ever? Like it's, it's a whole different ballgame and you're, you don't, you're not going to have a reputation like you might if, let's say I went to our audience and was like, hey, I'm going to build something that is going to solve all your whatever problems there would be a, a reputation factor, right? People know know me and, you know, hopefully like me and trust that I'm going to build something good. But, he, you know, he's not going to have that with these HR managers because it's just cold outreach. Correct. Well, I think what I would lean towards doing in that case is saying, if the product does this, this, and this, what are the roadblocks to you purchasing it? and paying for it. And that gives you a little bit of insight into the internal politics of how that company operates. And if you ask enough companies that specific question, you're going to get, uh, I would think, a reasonably decent cross-section of how companies at that level operate in terms of purchasing and requisition. Like Some are going to need to go through the IT department, and they have to hand it off to them, and then the IT department has to purchase it. Some of them are going to have a credit card. They're going to be able to just buy it themselves and then tell the IT department afterwards. Some of them, certain purchases above a certain dollar amount need to go through somebody. You can ask them about 
like if the pricing was this, what would you think? If the pricing was this other thing, what would you think? What are the roadblocks at each of those different points? And that's what you need to know is how like how are you going to sell to these people, assuming you built what they want? So one line of question is what is it that you want and need and what would make it so that you would pull the trigger and buy it or and say yes. And then the second part is, well, what does it take to actually get it into here? Yep. No, I think I think those are good points. You know, he asked two other questions, or he asked two questions in the email, and I don't know that we addressed them very well. His first one was, I wonder if you could talk about your experience with getting those initial meetings set up. Yeah, the experience is you have to send a lot of emails to get very few meetings. You know, the, the, the funnel is wide and the people are busy and they aren't going to want to talk to you. The other thing that I've done is used my network, network slash audience, right, to try to, to try to get that. So whether you're going on LinkedIn, whether you are warm emailing everybody you know to basically say, look, can you ask the HR manager to, I need advice. I'm an you know, aspiring entrepreneur. I'm a founder and I'm in early stages. I need advice on an HR product. Could you make an intro? I mean, that's, that's how you're going to get people who will at least talk to you on the phone. And my experience is that it's frustrating and takes longer than you want. And you get a lot of, no, I'm not going to talk to you. And then eventually you persevere and you figure it out. You talk to enough people. And then his second question, he says, I don't have a website at the moment, just initial product wireframes. Do you think that's a mistake at this early stage? And I could go either way on this. I think wireframes is fine, but I think, you know, non-technical people have a tough time feeling wireframes as, as real things. But I'm less worried about how the screens work, and I'm more worried about what is the headline? What is the headline of the, of the website? There's kind of this old uh, marketing thought, and I think it's, it's, it's good. It's something that I've done from time to time where you build the marketing page first. You build the landing page first. You go from there to then building the product. You know, So by the time you get that headline in there and some bullets of what the copy is and what it does, and that's how, how, you know, how we did it with Drip. And I'm trying to think of my book was that way too, where it was like it was five sentences on a page. And then I took that and said, now I'm going to go manifest this into reality. And so that's what I like about you building a, a marketing site is whether you do it in Squarespace or a WordPress SaaS theme, something, it doesn't have to look amazing, but does it, it's really about you getting it onto paper, right? Getting the marketing thoughts and the copy even in front of yourself. And maybe if they ask, you can, you can send them there and it's just email opt-in. I mean, it, you know, it kind of, it kind of depends, but I, I think I kind of lean towards doing that. I think it's a helpful exercise, especially for those of us who tend to want to go to the code. I was going to mention exactly that. Like the, I don't think that having a website in and of itself is going to help you, but I think the process of putting together the website makes you seriously think about what it needs to say and how you're going to position it. And it helps you craft a better story when you're talking to people about the solution on a call and you're demonstrating those wireframes and it, and it just helps you position it better so that if they look at your email and they say, well, let me just take a look at the website before I reply back to this. And that should tell them very quickly whether or not they want to even waste their time at all or whether you're serious. And if you don't have a website at all, who knows? I mean, I feel like you're, uh, this is definitely more me than anything else. But if somebody sends me an email and says, hey, I'm thinking about this and they've got literally nothing on their website at all, or they don't even have a website, it's really hard to take them seriously that they're even really going down this road. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So yeah, I hope those thoughts are helpful, Scott. Well, thanks for the questions, everyone. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsthereustofus.com. 
Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestless.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.